Beginning in spring 2020, 1.5 billion students around the world were locked out of their schools because of COVID-19. One year later, schools and post-secondary education are still hobbling along. They're opening, closing, adjusting school holidays, trying to keep up some form of schooling for young people. We're starting to get a picture of possible learning losses for many students, but I also have to say learning gains too for those who have the resources to cope, to motivate themselves outside of structured classes, even thrive. So what exactly are these resources? I'm Clara Young, Senior Editor in the OECD's Directorate for Education and Skills. And today I'm very, very happy to speak to Michael Unger, who is the Director of the Resilience Research Centre at Dalhousie University, Canada. Hello, Michael. Hi, Clara. In the COVID survey the OECD conducted in March this year, primary and secondary schools this spring were fully open in less than 40% of the 33 countries we collected data from. Now, all that has implications for purely academic outcomes, like the stuff we learn in chemistry labs or in history classes, but schools aren't just that, right? They're important for mental health reasons. Well, they're, if you think of what a child, for them, it's like their work world. It's an opportunity to form social relationships, develop social skills. A lot of their social and emotional learning, as well as the supports that they get, come through that physical institutional environment, as long as well as the network of relationships. You, I mean, even something like identity, if you think about it for a child that kind of is figuring out who they are, It's all that recognition. It could be from an academic subject, but it can also be through a sports activity or just through the social peer groups, the networking that they do on the playground, that they're really good at kicking that ball. So what we've actually seen, of course, during the pandemic is a complete shortchanging of children in getting all these other psychosocial needs met. What exactly are the kids going through? I mean, I think there's a lot of anxiety. We hear about sleep deprivation. What else are you hearing back about On the negative side, Clara, what we're hearing about, of course, is exactly that, you know, the fracturing of relationships and routines. Quite clearly, the children who are more vulnerable, who are already showing signs of stress before the pandemic are the ones that seem to be the ones most affected by the pandemic, the ones who had the least resources, partly the physical resources of technology in the home so they could learn online, or but also the mental health supports, the family supports, the quiet spaces, you know, the parent who was imposing structure on them. And, and there has been some good research coming out that shows the families that have maintained routine in the homes have children who are showing less anxiety and depression during the pandemic. But it's also about whether or not children were able to find substitutes. So if you're not playing football, soccer, whatever, if you're not playing those kinds of sports and or going off to play piano or whatever, if you're learning an instrument, what is your substitution? What is it that you're now doing that's bringing you that same recognition, sense of efficacy or that sense that I have some control or say in my life? All of these things have sort of evaporated out of children's lives, and it's put a lot of pressure on on families, indeed, to try and supplement those things. And there, there are solutions, but let's just be clear. Not only academically have we seen a sort of a pause in children's psychosocial development, but also on the mental health side as well. What's, I think, a little bit difficult to try to see is that there is some evidence that mental health issues are on the rise for, for example, 15 to 24-year-olds. There was a report, the England's Mental Health of Children and Young People Survey, which showed that mental health issues had doubled for that age group. But I remember in a piece that you wrote quite recently, 
You also pointed to other UK surveys where there weren't particularly more mental health issues or at all. Well, that's what's interesting. At least this was more of an adult survey, but what they actually showed was, at least in the first sort of six to eight months of the pandemic, that in the UK, the rates at first kind of went up just gently. And then issues like anxiety and depression actually seem to be dropping as people seem to adapt. Now, admittedly, most of the data seems to suggest a slightly different trend. And in fact, studies that I was involved in, say in the US, et cetera, have been tending to show an increase. But part of this could just also be an artifact of, you know, who are we measuring and who are we talking to exactly? What's very clear and pretty consistent is that younger children are not that badly affected by this. So we're talking, say, 10 and under, because their lives, if you think about it, they're still pretty home-based little bodies. And in fact, there could be some evidence that, frankly, they're kind of enjoying this time. <laughs> like, they're actually kind and of- parents, a, too. Yeah. It's like In you know, some cases. But if you think about a child's orientation, most of that attention is still there. They, they are oriented towards the caregivers and their home environments. Where we see, of course, the exact opposite, probably the group that's been most negatively affected from a mental health point of view, again, not physical health, because that's a whole another conversation, but from a mental health point of view has been the sort of 16 to 24 year olds. At that moment in most cultures where young people are sort of asserting themselves, launching, forming new relationships, thinking about their own post-secondary education, that type of thing, training, first jobs, all of that has been taken away. And that population is, in every study that I've seen, certainly is, is saying that, you know, this is a real sort of like pause entirely in their lives about getting on with it. Add to that also, if I might, this emerging consciousness around some of the social justice movements, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, as well as this sort of the climate emergency. And you have a confluence where these young people are, in fact, losing hope for, you know, that that's something, this is dragging on for a very long time. In their world, that seems to be the case. And I think neurologically, this is a period of time that is quite particular as well. Isn't, isn't that the case? And especially for girls? Well, actually, yeah, young women are showing more signs of anxiety and stress during this particular adolescence into young adulthood. Now, that could also be partly just the way, you know, we socialize different genders to basically express anxieties and this type of thing. So if you looked at probably at other statistics where we're seeing also an increase in alcohol and drug abuse among some populations, I suspect then you probably begin to tilt that a little bit more towards the males. So you get this kind of, yeah, you get these patterns of change. But to be fair, there's also other stories to be written in all this, right? Where I come from, I'm in, I'm in the East Coast of Canada. And who knew that when this pandemic happened, I believe it was 7% of our children in the province, and I'm in a very wealthy country, 7% of our kids did not have easy or access at all to the internet inside their homes. How is it that one of the most economically advanced countries in the world couldn't have made it possible before the pandemic for children to have access to what is almost a human right now in terms of getting onto the internet? And yet it took the pandemic for governments to cough up the minuscule, minuscule little bit of funding it took to create and remedy that particular situation for some of the most vulnerable children in our society. So I think about that as an example, but I also think about children who are reporting the change in pace to their days. They're not being rushed from one activity. You know, these hyper-vigilant, overprotective parenting kind of models where, you know, it's, well, it's Tuesday night, it's, it's, 
it's one sport and then this activity and then that and then our homework and then I mean a lot of children are actually I think I'm going to guess about 10% seems to be what the number that comes to my mind are actually experiencing this as a significant and possibly positive change to their lives because of these changes in routines and if I might on a personal note my own my own son who's just in grade he was finishing his high school years right now his marks have gone up much to the chagrin of his parents his marks have gone up tremendously during this pandemic because as he himself says he's an extremely social kid he does a lot of uh, sports activities he's an elite athlete in, in hockey ice hockey and so a lot of that of course evaporated which kind of in his 12th year of high school basically has meant that he's spending a lot more time and really ex- exercising that potential that we always knew he had academically. So I don't know. I don't want to make light. Let's face it. Most people are not experiencing this positively. A lot of kids are really being, you know, suffering through this, but there's also stories of perhaps we need to understand that there are some things that we can learn from this experience and hopefully post pandemic integrate better into our lives as well. You mentioned students who have an internet connection at home with which to work to do their remote learning. And the OECD has a statistic on that, that one in 10 students in OECD countries don't have internet access at home with which to do their schoolwork. And we're seeing socioeconomic factors like that make a difference in terms of learning gaps that we're only beginning to guess at what they would be right now. What about socioeconomic factors and mental health, like young people going into this that had resources and those who came into this with more adversity in their lives? Very clearly. I, I, so I study resilience actually all around the world across different cultures and contexts. And the work that we do, which kind of distinguishes us, the, the research group I lead, is that we look at those contextual factors as well. Um, it's not just about personal grit to have personal grit. You also need a computer. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like, why do we have this archaic and even the science now is far beyond that notion of, you know, individual qualities, simple mindfulness based exercises will get you through anything. We know that that those cognitive skills are important, but so are socioeconomic factors. Like, do you have access to an internet? Do you have a safe place, a quiet place to do your homework in a or you're at the kitchen table with four siblings running around and a, and a parent that's struggling with, you know, to, to make ends meet and incredibly stressed. These other factors definitely create a cascade of risks in a child's life. But the good news is resilience factors also create a cascade or a, a feedback loop that pushes us forward. And that includes a really good, well-trained teacher and a well-resourced school that has the technology to sort of reach out. Or as in the case of what happened in my region here was for that 7% of students, they were able to get access to a a Chromebook, a sort of a basically an iPad. So when we think about the capacity of of children to cope, I'm glad that the conversation is moving away from just what I've called ruggedness to also talking about being resourced or what we talk about is these two R's, the R2 Mm -hmm. model of resilience. And we're getting a little bit better balance in this, perhaps realizing that the the pandemic has forced us to think about really these stark disadvantages are suddenly not so invisible to us anymore. Now, a teacher who has had resilience training, what would a teacher be doing in these cases? What's the difference between a teacher who's had this kind of training and one who hasn't? I think what they would be doing is thinking about the child as both trying to develop the rugged side of the child, but also trying to develop the resources. So what we would know is that the science would tell us that that teacher would be doing things like really making sure 
that the child has routines and sort of some structure and expectations that are very clear on them. Now, teachers kind of naturally do some of this stuff, but they would also be doing stuff like, for instance, ensuring that the child has a way of expressing their positive identity through this. Now, interestingly, we used to think that, say, for instance, that being online was a risk to children's mental health. But over the age of five, six, the new research coming out is actually suggesting that actually being online is not necessarily bad, as long as it's not eight hours a day. Like I always say, eating broccoli eight hours a day is not good for you, nor is being online. But the distinction is, Clara, that being online and being active, in other words, putting up content, teacher that would be doing this would be saying to a child, when you create something in the classroom, let's make sure that you're still performing for other people. Are you posting in, um, I don't know if this is global or not, but we have something called Pinterest, which is people post online their recipes. And if I build a little table, I post online my plans. And it's called a whole thing called Pinterest. But there's also a funny side of Pinterest, which is Pinterest fails, in which you actually post. So somebody else makes this beautiful dinosaur birthday cake. And then what you do is you post your Pinterest fail, which is kind of a smushed green blob of icing that doesn't quite look like anything resembling a dinosaur. But the point is, the act of posting the act of putting our identities up. A teacher who's trained in more resilience would be thinking about not just the academic gains of the child, but allowing them to perform a new identity. They'd also be thinking about how do you create an online social community? Because again, relational spaces are really important for kids' psychosocial development. They would also be thinking about power and control. A child who's feeling incredibly powerless, how would we introduce not only routines and structure, but counterbalance that with children having decisions, small decisions, but still decision points in their day. And cumulatively, you add to that, say, some sense of their culture and sharing the things that are special, those, those moments of traditions. All of this can be achieved kind of online, but it would definitely be more than just simply, here's my content, I'm going to share my content pedagogically, and that's the end of the story. We'd be thinking about the child as a set of complex needs at multiple systemic levels from the structures around them, right down to their psychosocial well-being, to self-regulation practices, mimicking the day, the school day, so that you, you don't teach the same way. You don't ask a kid to sit in front of a camera online the same way as you teach in a classroom. All of those things would be attuned to a child's potential for resilience. Resilience, it has a different meaning in different countries and in different cultures, right? These social emotional skills that you're discussing, like creativity and agency and expressing yourself, they manifest themselves differently in different cultures, don't they? Yes. There are a set, I mean, it's that tension between the specificity of a particular culture and context and, of course, the, you know, the ubiquitous things. We, in our work, we found sort of a common set of things that are relatively, whether I'm talking about a child who's supporting her family at age 11 in Cambodia or a child who's living in some remote northern community um, and is 16 and has her own child, or you know, really quite diverse populations around the globe that we that we work with, there are some commonalities. Like some of them, hit sense of control, powerful identity, a sense of relationship with a group of people who care about you, some decision making power, routines in your life, expectations by others on you. These things are pretty common, but the manifestations look very, very different about what, say, for instance, when they looked at a great study that was done a decade or two ago from China, looked at, you know, what was a, a desirable set of qualities in a child in a rural part of China and how over the decades, as China's economy has changed, that sort of more dutiful, almost 
obedient kind of a filial piety kind of child that was very extolled as the you know the objective changed over a decade or two into a child who's much more entrepreneurial gregarious outgoing and it was kind of interesting that these these qualities that we think are quite fixed inside a society are actually quite fluid because cultures change and adopt and shift and are sort of cross-pollinated by other contacts as well so no surprise that resilience too, what we define as a resilient child during a pandemic, there's many different ranges of that. There are some common elements, of course, but what it will look like, especially from a, you add in gender, ability, racial differences, you begin to add in some of these other aspects and you get quite a buffet dinner, a gorgeous spread of potential things that we can see in what keeps children doing well. Uh, one last one, of course, is who is the primary caregiver? Who nurtures a child? I was just about to ask that. Well, because, you know, there's so much emphasis and it kind of bothers me sometimes in, in context where I live, the heavy emphasis on nuclear families, meaning, you know, a single, usually a biologically paired set of parents that are attached to the child. And it's such a minority view globally. A lot of other places on earth rely on a network of kinship relationships and it's just it's just like a child will find a knee of somebody in their community that they want to cuddle up on and if i might it's absurd to think that during this pandemic in a highly nuclear family these kinds of more small little nuclear nuclear families we've put all the onus on the parents who are probably the most stressed they've ever been trying to figure out their economic well-being and working from home and everything else and now we've said oh by the way you also have to be the teacher to your child the meal preparer to your child their emotional support because they're really stressed as well, and their friend because nobody else is around. All of that on the same person who is supposed to be supporting the family, it doesn't make any sense. So there's a certain amount of dysfunction in how we've thought about this. And again, resilience would say, how could a family, even a nuclear family, begin to open up those boundaries? I mean, the example I like to give is, I jokingly say that where I live in Eastern Canada, we're casserole people. You know, somebody down the street, a woman, she falls and breaks her hip. She gets a casserole or, or a week of casseroles. God forbid someone's child is really sick. They get a, a, a three months of casseroles that go into the freezer. I mean, and part of that is about then how do we, how do we expand even, even in a highly nuclearized family structure? How do you say to your own sort of seven or eight year old, look, take this casserole or help make a casserole. You go down the street and talk to Mrs. Smith through her window because you want to be real safe during the pandemic. You know, you go deliver and the child will grumble. I don't want to go down and talk to Mrs. Smith and stuff because, you know, she's going to talk a long time. Yes, she is going to talk to you for a very long time. Get out there and go give her the casserole. Stay six feet or 10 feet away from her because you don't want to, you know, whatever. And then, yes, you're going to share a little bit of your day with her. But the point of that is, is it, it, reenacts in a in a society which is in a real deficit and incredibly lonely by the way that's our real epidemic going on here mm -hmm. other than the pandemic it gives our children those opportunities to connect with a wider group of people and indeed that's part of the healing and i think during this pandemic when so many other social relationships that they used to have with their teachers their bus drivers their other people are disrupted we have to be creatively thinking about how else to give our children those connections there may be a, a sort of unprecedented opportunity now because during the pandemic, there was a, a lot more communication between teachers and parents. They were working together to try to keep education going for the children. And that may be one 
sort of network that can be expanded after, you know, the kids are fully back at school as a way to help students readjust, get over this period of time. I would like to think that, that in fact, maybe we've, we've gotten over a conceptual hurdle about connecting with parents as well. We know developmentally that when schools collaborate with parents on behavioral plans, this is some work out of the U.S. and the conduct disorder groups, and they, they show that when parents actually have an input on the behavioral plans for their children at school when there's a problem, and vice versa, when the school translates that into the home environment, everything goes better. There's consistency continuity. It's kind of like, you know, way it should work. But you kind of wonder, those communications have, have sometimes been quite clunky because, I mean, parents have to come to the school. Or, and here we are working now on these virtual environments. Why does parent-teacher interviews have to happen in person? And would we not engage more parents in contexts where there are the resources? Again, I'm, I'm conscious of that. I'm, you know, very self-conscious on what I'm saying here. But where there are the resources to do this, might we get more participation by actually doing these sessions virtually might we get both parents and let's face it it's often more often there's gender norms here more often it's women who go and meet the teachers than men in most traditional families and stuff and so would we also open up opportunities where we're reaching into the homes and maybe doing this in a more creative way in other words maybe we've learned something from all of this and maybe there's actually some new things that we should be doing um, to actually engage parents on in even better ways than we were before. Now, how about sort of more traditional emotional counseling therapy? I'm thinking about the French government has recently announced that they will be subsidizing therapy sessions for university students and high school students. Is that something that governments should be looking at for helping young people get through this period? Well, I think by every indication, we're going to see a spike in mental health concerns after the pandemic. I think that's what all the science is pointing to towards. But at the same time, I also want to not over-psychopathologize this. We have gone through war where there has been collective trauma and people move on as well. And let's not forget that when we talk about, say, resilience, we're talking about both individual rugged qualities, which are some of the psychological, the cognitive but there's also something about the associational and sharing a common experience with others. It's why in the Western world, when mostly men and some women came back from war, frontline combat, say World War II, World War I, they had these legions, these gathering places that were fundamental to part of the healing. Now, I'm not quite equating that kind of trauma to what people are experiencing during the pandemic. But the broader lesson is that when we have a shared experience and we have an associational space, there is something about preventing the impact of collective trauma on a whole community. So the, the one way of doing this is, you know, put a lot of money into individual psychotherapies. The other way is for people who really need that, we provide that. But then we also fund things like making sure that we have incredibly good recreational spaces for young adults, or even better, that we make sure that a lot of young adults have easier access to internships post-secondary education. If I had a preference to send a, a young, a 17-year-old to psychotherapy who's feeling, you know, whatever, off-put, hopeless about the future, or giving them a scholarship to go and attend a college, my preference every time would basically be the college. Let them try it for a month or two, see if they, it kickstarts what we almost call is social prescribing. This idea that you change environments around people to jumpstart a new set of behaviors and cognitions and thinking. 
some of that is actually what's going to heal. And if I might, if I had to offer like a, people say, oh, how many? I'd say 70% of people who are feeling off put by this experience, that 70% are going to respond well to just that sort of social change in opportunities around them. And then about 30% might need a tertiary level or another level of intervention. I'm just throwing those numbers out. I kind of made them up somewhat. But if you look at sort of general population trends and, and who does well under what kinds of stressors, you generally see those kinds of patterns. 10% are doing better now during the crisis than they were doing before. That's based on some work from Anthony Mancini in the US. You might suggest that. And then the other 90%, you know, this kind of one third, two thirds kind of breakdown. So I guess I give it some hope that we are that we can get through this, but some easier access to mental health would be great because ultimately it is an investment, a huge investment, just like education has a pay forward. We know that here. I'm, I'm talking with the ABCD. I, mean, I think we can figure that one out. So does mental health. And it prevents those other social ills, everything from social unrest to social exclusion to the lack of employment. It's just a cascade of problems that never end in, in people's lives if we don't get it treated early. Well, thank you very much, Michael Unger. Oh, a real pleasure. Thank you for this invitation to share some ideas. It was very interesting. Thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about the OECD's work on education, have a look at our Twitter page. Our Twitter handle is at OECDEDUSkills. skills.